Tributes continued to pour in for Izumi Matsumoto. The creator of Kimikore Orange Road passed away back on October 6th at the age of 61 from various health complications. His legacy is basically Kimikori Orange Road, of which the manga ran from 1984 to 1987, and inspired an anime series which ran from 1987 to 1988, with one final movie in 1996. Through that title, it established a number of key points in the history of anime and manga. And while Kimikori Orange Road is a title that is near and dear to my heart, and perhaps a very good thing to stake your legacy on, in the past few weeks since his death, I've learned that because of the various ailments that Matsumoto was suffering from, there was some missed opportunities too. As mentioned when we first talked about this story a couple weeks ago, there was a great personal tribute on Anime News Network by the woman who was his liaison when he appeared at KatsuCon in Washington, D.C. back in 2012. On this special edition of the Anime Roundtable, we will talk with the writer of that piece as we look back on the legacy of Izumi Matsumoto, some of the symbolism in Kimikori Orange Road, and how its success has shaped the anime and manga industry in the more than 35 years since it first came out. The opinions expressed in the following are those of its participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the producers and the Six Talk Podcast Network. Also, the following contains mature material and mild language, which may not be suitable for all audiences. Discretion is advised. Looking at journalist Kat Callahan, I can best describe her as maybe the biggest non-Japanese Kimigori Orange Road fan in the world. I have every reason to believe that having seen pictures of her collection and reading her piece, it's clear that Kor had a strong effect on her personally. And Kat Callahan now joins us from her home in Tokyo, or just outside of Tokyo. Happy Saturday. Where are you exactly, Miss Callahan? I live in Makuhari, which is um, part of Chiba, Chiba City in Chiba Prefecture. It's about 90 minutes outside of uh, central Tokyo and maybe about 35 minutes by train to Akihabara. I know Makuhari because that's where the 1994 World Figure Skating Championships took place and Yuka Sato won gold in front of a hometown crowd. That's how I know that. That's how I know about that area. Okay, let's talk about how are you feeling a couple weeks after Matsumoto's passing? I mean, a lot better, and that is grief-stricken. Uh, I think I may have told you this. There were a couple of other deaths within that same window. My uncle passed away at the end of September, and then there were some other just, I guess, hero sort of deaths, people I didn't really know. In a lot of activist circles, I know the ways in which their activism made life better for everyone. In that period of about three weeks, it was kind of all the grief was kind of thrown together. 
now I've got some distance and with Matsumoto specifically, I'm really happy, warmed by the outpouring of interest, of, of um, love, of people telling their stories. And it's really caused a resurgence in interest in his work, in fandom in his work, or maybe more specifically, people realizing that there are others who care about the work as much as they do. Um, I think the fandom had gone dormant for a while, and maybe except for little small pockets here and there, weren't really talking to each other. And if any good has sort of come out of this, I think it's that those pockets are now seeing each other and they're starting to, to coalesce and, and, and bring back sort of the conversation. Uh, it's swapping memories. Uh, just quickly, how did you learn of the passing? On Twitter. I'm sorry, I'd have to go look at, at what her Twitter handle was. Bunny something, I think. Okay. She, she's a, a regular commentator. And so whenever I don't follow her, but a lot of the people I follow, follow her. And I think it wasn't maybe a few hours or something after uh, the uh, notification was put on the Comic-Con website. I, I learned on Twitter, but I forgot. Oh, no, it was on Facebook through one of the groups there. I think it was a retro anime group. That's where I learned about the passing myself. First exposure. This is like, we're going to swap stories. I think this is probably what his death has done. I think it's brought out people from the woodwork who were fans and maybe swapping stories about the show itself. Your first exposure. What was your first exposure to Kimigori Orange Road? I know you said that in the article. Yes. So essentially what happened was, is I had just moved from Austin to Plano, Texas, a suburb of North Dallas. And uh, we moved into this house and we had literally just moved into the house. I mean, like the day before, right? It was like my first day in Plano. And my parents had gone out to drive around and sort of scope out what was in the neighborhood. And outside of the subdivision, sort of where we lived, on the corner of a, of a fairly busy intersection, there was a strip mall. I mean, it's suburbia. Mm -hmm. And in this strip mall was a, a comic book store that no longer exists called Kaboom. Kaboom Comics and Stuff with one F. And they went inside. And at this point, I was already into Japanese animation. We talked a little bit before we started recording about how I was already aware of anime to some degree. So at least, I guess my you mother... You sound out of place in a retro group, by the way. Just <laughs> Not at all. So my mother knew what to, at least knew the style to look for, so to speak. And in this comic book store, of course, there were your, it was a normal comic book store. So of course, 90% of it was Marvel, DC, Image, Vertigo, you know, whatever, whatever. But there was a section that was, I guess, anime and manga. And it had the old style Viz chapters that were like in American comic book size. And she grabbed one of Ranma One Half and one of Maison Ikoku. And she brought them back and she gave them to me and said, hey, this looks like that, that stuff you like. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so I, I read them and immediately knew, 
uh, well, this is like, what, 20, 20 pages, maybe not even that. This is not enough. I have to go find out if there's, there's more of this, right? So I got on my bike and in a very stereotypical suburban scene, I biked my way through the neighborhood to the intersection and found the, the store and I went in and immediately found this, this rack that was, you know, manga. And most of it was biz, although it also had the, um, the old mix, which became Tokyo Pop yes. anthologies with uh, Sailor Moon, which I also bought one of those. But it had the original Shonen Jump titles. It had Roroni Kenshin and a couple of others, right? And one of them was volume 14 of Kimagure Orenjirodo. <laughs> and so of course I'm picking this up and I bought, I bought one, sort of one of everything, even though I couldn't read the Japanese one. So I bought that, that volume of Aruni Kenshin, although it, it, I sold it. I mean, I probably sold it not long after, honestly, never really been a fan of Kenshin and I'm trying to read it. And of course I can sort of make out the story because the story I think is, is fairly simplistic. I could at least tell, I mean, of course, and I'm 13, right? I, I know what it's like to have awkward interactions with people you have crushes on, right? I know that. So it, I could kind of follow along with what was going on. And then I said, I bet that someone has already worked on, on writing at least a summary. And so if I can, I can figure out what this is. So that was when I started trying to figure out, like looking up online and I found panel by panel translations on Usenet. Yes. I am aware of that because in back in the day when I was in an anime club in the York University Anime Club, I was the club's first librarian. The duty of the first librarian was to search for these things, Usenet translations, panel by panel translations. So I know what exactly what you're talking about there. But I would say that I, and, and I say this in the article that I wrote, of course, I understood that I was reading someone else's translation. And that meant that there would be nuance or context or what we call in academia, because my grad was, was civics, is, is political science, but my undergrad was English. And we talk about intertextuality. And intertextuality is what the reader brings to the experience of re reading. So while I have the greatest of respect for professional translators, I think even from the very beginning, and these were not professional, right? These were fan translations, is I felt this pool to suddenly learn Japanese so that I would be able to uh, have a, a, a more direct intertextuality. And so what's interesting to me is how, yes, I there were these, these other anime series I liked. You know, I was a fan of Sailor Moon. And there was never this impetus to get off my duff and start learning the language until I had this volume of Orange Road that I couldn't read. And, <laughs> of course, it also sent me on locating the anime series, because at that point, Animego, I think, had already started releasing the VHS tapes, and, and they, the, uh, they hadn't released the LD set yet. It was going to be pre-ordered. I wanted to be in on the pre-order that was $98.99, uh, and my parents were like, you don't, no, it's one, too expensive, two, they haven't made it yet, and three, you don't have an LD player, no. 
right? And at that point, I didn't have my own money. <laughs> I didn't have a job, yes. um, you know, to pay the hundreds of dollars it was going to be. But we had the VHS tapes. And I found, as and this is something that I think a lot of other retro anime fans will remember from the, the 90s especially, is, of course, I found in that same neighborhood a, an Asian grocery store that at the back had perhaps dubious legality <laughs> copies oh, of the yeah. VHS copies of the, 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 and I don't know. I mean, I don't know if they were or not, but I was able to get a hold of, of the TV series on, on VHS that way. The short answer to that question is to some degree. Back then, there might have been a tape agreement for expats to be able to keep up with broadcasts from their homeland. That was the only way they could do it at the time. So the practice to some degree was allowed by the broadcasters back home for them, just for reference. Because I remember going to a Japanese supermarket and seeing the same thing. Yeah, I, I don't, like I said, I actually don't know the history. And I think that by the time that I was adult enough to start understanding things like legal implications, we had crossed over into, we, we crossed for certainly, so I was, uh, I turned 17 and was a freshman in university in 2000, 2001. So um, I, I, I think that although I had that experience in my, my mid-teens, I don't know, right? It's only retroactively that I'm thinking back and asking, well, I don't know how this played out. But yeah, so I was able to get the, the VHS tapes and, and get the series that way. And then eventually I was able to, I think, order a couple of the VHS tapes, like directly from Animego. But I never had the full series on exactly the same format until the DVDs came out, which was several years later. In the early aughts, yes. And I was pre-order number six on that. <laughs> you were quick, weren't you? I was waiting for it. Yeah. Well, well, my memories of Kimigurui Orange Road, and I've stated that this was the hook for me, the hook, line, and sinker title for me. So this was about 1990, I believe 1997, First year of the anime club at York University. This was, I believe, its second ever show. And the president at the time, the people who headed it, they showed the first two episodes of, of a fan sub of it. That's, that was my first exposure to the series. Watched them, loved them, and asked where she got them. And I found out it was a comic book store that was actually close to where I lived in Mississauga. These are the uh, Visser brothers that we, who if regular listeners of this show know, remember, they actually held the server for this, for the original version of this podcast way back. And they were regulars on our show. They ran a comic book sh shop, much like, much like yours, Kat. And uh, towards the latter end, they started stalking anime and they had fan subs. They'd lend them to you. And that's how I uh, started to learn about it a little bit more. At the time, Animigo actually didn't have the 
TV series to write. So that's why I ended up seeing it on a fansa, but they had long had the OAVs by that point. And they only had, I think, about eight episodes of the entire series at the time. And so it was actually really hard for me to find. And then strangely, I ended up befriending or on on the internet. Um, I don't know if it was on boards or Usenets, but a fan subber who had fan subbed the entire run of the television series, and I was able to get the tapes from them. So I had that. And I, but the strange part was I never totally got through all of that. But as I was looking through for information over time about Kimigori Orange Road, and during that time, I actually did briefly own the Japanese manga myself, the original Japanese versions. I, and maybe this is where I, our path starts to diverge a little bit. I came to the conclusion that I wouldn't learn Japanese anytime soon, so I donated it to the Japanese club at York University. But strangely, I didn't watch the rest of the television series. I actually watched the OAV and the first movie first. Memory serves me right. And then as time went, and let and I know, and I'm gonna hear you, I want to hear your thoughts on this part of it. I stumbled across Peter Payne's translation of the first Shinkor light novel. I mean, that this is anybody in fandom would know who Peter Payne is, J List fame. But just before J List, around the time J List came out, he translated the first two novels, which, of course, Matsumoto had nothing to do with, but it was meant as a continuation of the story. And we'll get your thoughts on that later on. So I learned about a little bit further past the timeline of the manga and the anime television series. And in time, Animigo, we learned, got the rights. Yes, they brought out the series on VHS. And ultimately, yeah, I got the their original version of the DVDs in the nice box. I forgot what number I was in that queue. And time goes. And of course, the Kickstarter a couple of years ago, finally, one of the bucket list items on my list is knocked off with having at least an English translation of the manga from DMP. So that's sort of the story. Over time, I kind of paid it forward as well. My senpai, who introduced me to Kimigori Orange Road. She introduced it to me, so did the, and along with my friends at the comic, comic book store with the Visser brothers, I slowly introduced it when the DVDs came out a few years later to my friends in the anime club. Like I was the elder statesman in that club by that point and introduced Kimigori Orange Road to them. And hopefully, maybe with Matsumoto's death, Perhaps the beat will go on. So that's my own experience with Kimigori Orange Road. What, what appealed to me at the time, I watched it. I mentioned Wonder Years in the episode, and then you, Kat, quickly showed me an article you'd written about it, about the comparisons. Great article, by the way. I Thank enjoyed you. that. And that was the parallel I quickly drew. I, and by, that, by the time I saw it, um, Wonder Years had been off the air for a couple of years, but it was a favorite of mine at the time in the 80s and early 90s. And probably it struck the chord the same way Kimigoro and Road did. And as you stated, it 
was we had a main character that was somewhat relatable. And as I said, I drew the parallels uh, just on the, of course, the relationship parts. Madoka and Kyosuke, Kevin and Winnie. But when I think about it a little bit more, too, and this was indirectly brought up in your tribute, music. Wonder Years is set in the 60s. And it had a cover of Help From My Friends, which is, I think, a Ringo Starr song originally, but it was a, co- it was a more well-known cover. That was its opening theme song. And, of course, you kept hearing 60s music throughout the run of the TV series. And it, funny enough, it, it was probably one of the things that the trip-ups for ever seeing it on DVD. It was, in fact. Um, yeah. It, there were severe licensing issues around the music, and that's why it took so long for there to be a DVD release of The Wonder Years. Mm-hmm. And you brought up Matsumoto's interest in music and how he turned to becoming a manga artist when he realized music wasn't in the cards for him in the future. He was a drummer. Yes, he was. But music figured heavily in the anime. It was a very 80s show. I constantly joke, it would have fit into Ready Player One if they decide to make that reference. But the music figured in very heavily as well to that series. As I said, that was, that's my story. That's the way I, the story as I remember it. But I'm going to give you a quick thank you because in preparation to talk with you this evening, or this morning in your case, you forced me to finally read the entire manga, which I had held off on doing for various reasons, or kept from doing for various reasons, but in order to maybe be ready for this, I really had to completely read the manga. And thank you for pushing me to do that. And it was a good read. I always have fun reading manga and then remembering back to the anime versions and seeing, okay, there are plots here that were similar to what I saw in the anime. It's just that they treated it just slightly different. That That's true. Although I, I, I think, except for really... The ending, though, and I mean, things happen before or after. And also the, the other thing is a lot of the key important stories that we remember that became the OVAs, mm-hmm. they are more in line. Some of them are actually labeled omake in the manga, okay, uh, in the Japanese, but they're interspersed throughout the manga. And so I always call them, you know, vignettes is what they are. And so I think the big difference is that it's a lot easier to see where the OVAs are or where those stories, and yeah, you're right, there are slight differences and they're not exactly the same, but they're pretty close. Where they actually fall in the timeline is a lot easier to see in the manga. Uh, And there are, like I said, there's things where some of them have been a little bit separated out or a little bit combined when it comes to the anime, but roughly... I would say that it's easy to argue from like a sort of a canon perspective that the events, with the exception of really the final uh, conflict and resolutions, right, are, are, not, are, not, are not any different. 
you know, if you looked at the anime and you looked at the manga up until the, the, the ends, you could almost believe that these are the same events being described as in two different people's memories, but they would be still be I, I, the same people doing the same things. I generally don't really think of the manga universe and the anime universe as particularly different with the exception, and I'm sure we're going to get to that, with the exception of the difference of the endings and why those endings are different, which actually does go back to the beginning of the series in each case, but viewers aren't necessarily aware of it. I get it. We, we, we start separate, but in the middle, we look at it similarly, and then they divert again at the very end, basically. Basically. Mm-hmm. Well, the way I looked at the OAV myself was, at best, it was stories that you could have stuck in anywhere during the television series. Well, that's true. That's that's the way I looked at the OAVs. Maybe if there was stories they would have wanted to tell in animated form from the manga, when I think about it now, that's sort of the purpose of the OAVs. Maybe there were stories that they didn't get to in the course of the anime series that they would have wanted to tell, and that's how I saw the OAVs. They were fun. They kind of helped develop the relationships a little better. I thought it gave a better sense of Madoka herself and some of what her thought process was. Definitely agreed. I think one of the issues with the the TV show, and and I, I've said this, I think maybe, I don't remember exactly, I don't even know if it was in our conversation, I think it was in a conversation with somebody else, where I said, while I don't think that even the anime was supposed to be a, a sitcom. I don't like that description of Orange mm-hmm. Road for various reasons. I think that the TV show was under pressure to create something that in a like in a North American context, not that it was ever intended to be, but like in if if we're gonna make a, a, a comparison or an analogy, would be easily syndicated in the sense that if I'm watching TV in Japan and I'm just watching TV and flipping through channels. I should be able to watch an episode of Orange Road anywhere in the TV series and enjoy whatever the episode is about insularly. And so a lot of the TV episodes, a lot of the TV episodes don't drive the plot the way even the OVAs do especially in comparison to the manga, I think the manga drives the plot forward a lot more. Well, yes, yes. Right. I was thinking episodic. They were too episodic for your liking. Is that, well, is that a safe thing to say? Well, not, not necessarily. I, I don't have a problem with it. I'm saying that I think that it's really easy for, I think, I think it's, it, it, it can have less impact um, for growth, right? Being able to follow character growth is, I think, more difficult in the anime because of this, not just episodic, but like fractured or segmented. For one of the, one of the big problems with the anime uh, is that it aired in a single anime season, essentially, right? Uh, a little, like less than a year. 48 weeks, I guess. But the problem with that is that it actually is supposed to take place. The same events are truncated. They're, they're smashed together. When actually, by the time we get to the OVAs, one OVA, the, the OVAs with Akane, right? 
we're specifically told that now mm-hmm. Madoka, Akane, and Kyosuke are already 17. But we have like no mention of age since Jugosai, since 15 in the TV series. But we know that the entire series from the first TV episode to Anohi ni Kairi Tai, right? The, the, uh, the movie, I Want to Return to That Day, is like four or five years. And, yes. right? And so what's weird is that you really have to sort of like watch the TV series understanding that this is like three or four years of experiences. It's not the one single year. It sort of feels like because of the way the production of the TV series. So I think that's important to remember. And it's worth noting that the manga takes place over at least a three-year period as well. Because we start with them at the end of junior high or middle school. Not even, not even the end. I would, looking at the events, I think it's early summer. So it's not at the beginning of the year because, of course, we know that being a Tenkose, being a transfer student, mm-hmm. uh, Kyosuke and his family have moved in. But it's after, I think, Madoka's birthday, which is May 25th. And now summer vacation oh. in Japan doesn't start until the end of July or August. So I would argue, realistically, we're probably talking about June or July. Remember, when they first meet, Madoka's in a Hawaiian shirt and shorts. So it was already fairly weather. warm. It was already okay. fairly warm. Well, I, my point was almost three years pass because the end of the story takes place in their third year of high school. Well, the very end of both takes place basically at graduation. So, so mm-hmm. I think what, I would argue it's even closer to four years because it's almost all of the last year of junior high school and then all of the three years of senior high school so it's really more like four years Mm -hmm. okay so this is where we are that's right three years sorry about that i got my addition wrong that's right third year middle school or junior junior high high three years of and then three years of high school right yeah so it's basically four years and then of course if we look beyond that to what starts happening with Anohi, if we're talking about the movie, or in Shin Core, then you're looking at five years, six years, because then you have to look at their first year or even maybe second year at Waseda mm-hmm. uh, University. Yeah, I mean, this keeps going on. Well, I want to get your thoughts on Shin Core a little later, but let's start going through some of the characters a little bit. And I'm going to just pull out things that came out of to me in the tribute you wrote for Anime News Network, and maybe we can keep going on each of them for a couple minutes. Sure. I'm going to just go through my lines. Kyosuke. Let's start with Kyosuke himself. Narrative purpose to Kyosuke. That's the note I wrote to myself because I think the criticism about Kyosuke is he's just there, but there's nothing special about him. But you saw a narrative purpose to Kyosuke. So I object to the objectors, as you might say. So I'll, I'll talk about a conversation I had, what, two years ago with Erica Friedman, who you may may know. I know of her. And uh, shout out to Erica, because I know she gave a like to the episode we did a couple weeks ago. So shout out. I'm flattered that you even gave any notice for that. When it comes to English language, uh, North American anime fandom, she's probably the expert when it comes to Yuri, right? Female, female relationships. Yes. And we've been friends, again, since the late 90s. We were on uh, fan fiction panels 
20 <laughs> years ago, right? And one of the things we've talked about before is this idea of let people like what they like, even if you really don't like it. And she doesn't like Orange Road. She doesn't like Kiyosuke. But she really loves that I love Orange Road, right? And she'll be the first to be super supportive. So when when I was looking at finding someone to allow me to write this tribute, right? I was shopping around for, um, because I'm a freelance journalist, to put it. It was um, Erica who pinged Lindsay and said, Kat is the shit on Matsumoto. You need to let her, her write this, right? So she's very supportive of people doing the creative work in their fandoms, even if it's a fandom she doesn't particularly like. And I remember a conversation, we were going to a sailor uniform exhibition here in Tokyo, (laughs) and she was in, I think it was two years ago. And we were having this conversation about the problem she had with, with, with Orange Road. And, and the problem she had is, is this idea that Kiyosuke is kind of a putz, right? He, he doesn't have a strong identity. He's very weak-willed. And he, you know, he can't make a decision. And that's true, right? I don't disagree with that. But, and this is where the narrative purpose comes in, is I think that we can all relate to feeling like that as an adolescent. Who am I? What makes me special? What do I do? And this person that I'm, I have a crush on, or this person that I like, or this person that I love, are they really going to see anything in me if I can't see anything in myself? And I think we can all recognize that being a teenager is a time of trying to figure out who you are. And the other thing we have to understand about Kyosuke is Kyosuke has had a very untethered uh, childhood and adolescence so far when we meet him. They've moved seven times, and he's only a ninth grader. <laughs> That's like every, every, oh, not, like every 18 months or something, or right, of his schooling. They've had to move, and probably pretty far. And, and of course, I've talked about this other places, but of course, I, we, did, we don't really explore this, but I think it's important, is the absolute fear that the Casca family has about basically being discovered by the government or perhaps the military. Like, are they going to dissect them? Are they going to study them? Are they going to lock them up? That doesn't really, yeah, it doesn't, it it barely is touched upon, like even as an aside, kind of at the beginning to set up the plot, but it's crucial, I think, to understanding a lot of the motivations of what Kiyosuke does uh, in regards to the power, but also in this idea of not wanting to stand out, of not wanting to bring attention to himself. And, you know, also this idea that he hasn't had friends, he hasn't had normal relationships. A lot of the way we learn about who we are is understanding who we are in relation to other people. And he's really lacked that. And like I said, I think that's another thing that's relatable, especially if you are from a family that's moved around a lot, right? And I had, I was born in Illinois. My biological dad died. We moved to New Mexico. We moved, I think we had three houses in Las Cruces. Then we moved to Austin. Then we moved to Plano. Then we moved to Frisco. Then I moved back to Austin. Then I moved to Nacogdoches. Then I moved, you know what I mean? Georgia. Then I've moved to Japan. So, you know, I think understanding that community and your neighborhood and the people that you spend time with help create you. It's understandable why Kiyosuke is lacking in identity when we meet him. 
And I don't think he lacks an identity by the end of the series. Actually, with all of what you just said, in the latter stages of the manga, and it's not depicted in the anime, if I remember, the island, the visit to the island, and ultimately culminates in the visit to his mother's grave. And with all the explanations from his grandparents that there used to be many of them, many people with Esper powers, and how they ended up having to hide over time. Correct. I think you you, you kind of hit a, a real thing. And that, that fact wasn't really explored in the anime now that I think about it. Not really. There's, like I said, there's, there's like two or three phrases that sort of give hint to it. And if you've read the, it's like, that's the thing is if you read the manga and, and of course, like I said, I read the manga before the anime, right. Or at least part, at least parts of the manga and late in the manga before I, I got a hold of enough of the anime to start actually watching it is you know what's being referenced. And so you have that intertextuality as in this case, as a viewer inter, I don't know, intervisuality might be the, the equivalent for viewing, but as a viewer, if you already know that background from the manga, right, then you hear, you hear this frustration of Kurumi running a couple of kilometers in two seconds or whatever she does, right? Mm -hmm. That's, that could get them killed. And like I said, we, we have a little bit where Kiyosuke's mother does appear in the anime once, I think. And they talk a little bit about that. Telling the story of how his parents got together. And we got, and we get a little bit from the the grandparents, but not a lot. And also, of course, we have canonically some really weird things happening. So of course there's the OVA when they go skiing, right? The story Mm -hmm. where they, where they interact with that, that spirit in the village that the Kasuga are from. Right. So we, we canonically know that weird crap happens where they're from. Right. And this is sort of hinted at in the anime. And if you already had the background, you can understand how, how serious it is. And I don't think that you even have the kios the kioske in the anime without understanding that this is in the background, even if it's not seen on screen. It was part of like the series Bible essentially that produced the character that we do see on screen. Well, yeah, and for me, I ended up watching the anime first, then reading the manga second. For you, it was the other way around. So let's just say it fills in some loose ends for me, having read the manga and reading that part of the story. And I never had anything against Kyosuke himself, maybe because I sort of identified too with him as what I was when I was a teenager as well. Well, let's move on a little bit to the other two. Hikaru. The note I wrote concerning Hikaru was, on one hand, she was aggressive, and on the other, she was manipulative. And I think we're talking about the two the versions of Hikaru that that came out in both the anime and manga, respectively. Because is it just me? Does is Hikaru does Hikaru come across as a little more strong willed person by the end of the manga? Because by the end of the anime. At least the the end of the first movie, she looked. It was devastating. Both ways is devastating, but she comes out looking stronger for what happened in the manga. But in the yeah. anime, she's left decimated. Well, I think this is where, we, and we I kind of foreshadowed this a little, a little bit earlier in our conversation. Yes. 
so there is a there is a, a a butterfly effect that happens that starts at the beginning of the anime that you don't see until the ending. And this is why the endings were were so different. Mm-hmm. And let's talk about where we're going with this. So yeah, let's go. Okay, so Hikaru in the anime knows almost from the beginning. Maybe not the first episode, maybe not the second episode, but certainly within the first part of the 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 series. Even if we don't see her knowing, right, she does, right? It becomes really apparent to Hikaru in the anime that Midoka and Kyosuke have feelings for each other, right? What's so weird is that this isn't generally known to everybody else at school, right? And I think there's a reason for that we can talk about later. But, but anyone who's actually close to them Yukari in the band, master, right? right? Anything, anyone who spends considerable time, even even Komatsu and Hata will will make comments about how they think Madoka is is dangerous or not worth pursuing. But they only say that because they realize Kyosuke is interested, right? You should stay away from Madoka. You don't want to go down that road. Well, they wouldn't say that if they didn't know Kyosuke was interested in going down that road. So the Right. right. So, so the, the characters, point. yeah. So the characters that that really spend time with Kyosuke and Madoka, they know. And Hikaru is not stupid, and she's not stupid in the manga either. It's just different. But there's no way that we can we can really argue that Hikaru is is stupid. So she picks it up, and that's going to cause problems later on that have to be addressed. And that's why the manga ending doesn't work. In the manga, however. The relationship between, or budding relationship, you might say, the feelings of Madoka and Kyosuke are much more private. Master certainly sees it. And, and maybe you could argue Yukari sees it, and, right? And of course, obviously, she shows up as a plot device. Sayuri definitely sees it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe even Hiromi, although she's kind of a thing that I... I, I don't particularly like that whole arc, but I but again it tells a little bit more about that fear that Kyosuke has about standing mm-hmm. out. For 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 our listeners, Hiromi is someone who knew Kyosuke before. Right? This is, Hiromi's yeah. a, a an exclusive character to the to the yeah. manga. Well so is Sayuri, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, too. And- I think there's just there just wasn't enough well for Sayuri it makes sense because they didn't need her with and with what we're talking about with Hikaru. With Hiromi mm-hmm. I just think there wasn't enough time. But with Hikaru, going back to Hikaru, so anime Hikaru knows, right? When I say aggressive and manipulative, I'm actually talking about two different versions of Hikaru within the anime. Within the anime? Yeah, within the anime. And let me explain. We see in both versions, anime and manga, that Hikaru has followed Madoka into delinquency. And we only get the barest. There was a lot more of this in some of the early drafts of Orange Road and Spring Wonder. And I can send you some of those pictures if you'd like to see them. We get a little bit more uh, uh, time with Madoka and Kyosuke at the beginning when, when uh, uh, or um, with Hikaru, Madoka, and Kyosuke before Hikaru takes on this more lovey-dovey sort of attitude. So we, 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 in, we are introduced at the transition point, right? So we see like when, when in the, the second episode, I think it is, when Hikaru... Uh, is offering cigarettes to the twins in their homeroom. But she's being super cutesy about it. 
right? That's way to get on their good side. Yeah, but she's still offering them cigarettes, and so it's this weird transition where she is using what she has had the character that she had as a, a delinquent, but trying to modify it to get in good with the twins to get closer to Kyosuke. The thing is, is that when I say she was aggressive, we see only pretty much in that opening scene where she is hanging out with the guy who drops her off at school on the bike and she yells at him and she yells at other people and she yells at Kyosuke before she sees him do the, do the basketball sink from across the gym and decides that she's interested in him. She's like, what the fuck are you looking at? But, but I mean, basically that's what it's really rude Japanese. Right. And she's like, what are you staring at? And that's the, that's the, the character she has taken on. That's an aggressive character. And we see a little bit more of that in the manga. And we certainly see even more of it in the, the sort of the, the, the rough drafts, the initial drawings and sketches and stuff that Matsumoto did that didn't even make it into the, the final manga. And so we have to make a lot of assumptions. And then, of course, we, we learn about the Hikaru who is, who is like sickly sweet, right? Who is, is, is <laughs> cutesy. She's, she's changing herself. Super clingy. Yeah, cling, clingy, I think is one of the words I use. But both of these are acts. I don't think these actually represent the real person that Hikaru is, right? In either case. In the manga, we don't have this kind of obvious put-on disguises the way that we do in the anime. And I'm, I'm not criticizing Hikaru for, as an adult. You know, as an adult, especially one who was a junior high school teacher for 11 years, the Hikaru that we see in the anime is a realistic example of a teenager trying on identities to see what fits, whether it actually fits or not. That's what we have in the anime, right? In the manga... We have a, um, a much more innocent and less knowledgeable Hikaru, but we also have a Hikaru that is not quite so sickly sweet. A Hikaru that is not as, at least I never, looking at her Japanese, even with the, the darling, mm-hmm. the way that I hear Hikaru in my head when I'm reading the manga is not so saccharine, right? And so I think you're right to bring up this idea that that there's a more of a core sense of self with manga with the manga hikaru and that's one of the reasons why even though she doesn't she she's uh, oblivious in a way that anime hikaru is not and she obviously reacts to it very badly causing the resolution of the manga she also has the strength of character to get over it much faster than anime hikaru who does Right. And we can, when we talk about mm-hmm. Shinkor, we can talk about that. But I don't think that either versions of Hikaru are unrealistic teenagers. They're just different people and they're not bad yeah. people. Oh, no, that's a, that's a fair statement. That's a fair statement. And as I said, Hikaru looked like she recovered a lot faster in the manga to me. So that was just the impression I got. I think you're right. But I think it goes down to this idea of the sense of self. Yes. And you gave, and you gave your foundation for that. Madoka, you mentioned in your tribute the whole idea that Madoka could be biracial. And I thought that was an interesting theory. And the fact that you put that thought up to Matsumoto himself and he wouldn't 
confirm nor deny it. Sounds like. That's accurate. I thought that was an interesting take. And when you brought that up, I start to think about it logically. Remember, Akina Nakamori, Phoebe Cates, the two visual models that Madoko was based on. I knew about the Phoebe Cates one. I knew about that one for a long time. Let's give a quick context here. Phoebe Cates in the 80s was one of the it girls. She was very much a sex symbol. Absolutely. And she was on the same scale as Brooke Shields at the time. And they actually did similar movies, just for reference. Well, I've seen them. Yeah, Paradise (laughs) and uh, Blue Lagoon. So the comparisons were there. Around the same time, there was a miniseries called Lace. She starred in that, which was a to- the talk at the time for, t- for event television. So she was a- a- an it girl back in the 80s. And she is of various mixed race. You mentioned a few. I, the, the Filipino part was the one that stuck out to me because I'm a Filipino background myself. So the logic being... The bit with Madoka looking way more mature than the average junior high schooler, for starters. Oh, and for reference, going back to the whole Brooke Shields, Phoebe Cates comparison, the new emperor, Naruhito, was actually a big Brooke Shields fan at the time as well. That had been quite well documented. Yeah, he, uh, before he left England, when he finished up at Oxford... Well, he met Brooke Shields uh, just before he, around the time he finished his studies. So, as I said, the parallels are all there. Well, and you also uh, make the argument that that fact about her, or that possible fact about her, led to some of the ways she can be. That's certainly my my interpretation. Um, an interesting character. Go ahead. Feel free. I, I think that. I mean, I. I don't think I was, again, this is another conversation that I, like I said I, earlier in the, the conversation, that now these conversations are starting to be generated and I'm having a lot of conversations with different people about Orange Road, um, which I think is a, a great thing. The thing about Madoka, and it, it makes a lot of sense if you know what it's like to experience being a visual minority or having the reputation of being a minority in Japan and i think that if we that there's already a lot of other things about madoka if we talk about the fact that her parents are never there because they 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 live in america and they travel the world as part of a, a symphony it, it, it is there it, there's themes of isolation and i would like to think that one of the reasons why without receiving denial or confirmation, which of course, you know, we always would, if it's our pet theory, we want to say, oh, well, you know, he didn't deny it. So that must confirm it. But I think that I, I, I think that um, one could say that Madoka's uh, background is sort of Schrodinger's um, ethnicity. And I say that because if you have that experience or know that experience, right. And are able to, again, intertextuality, are able to bring it to the character, you understand the character's motivations because you understand your own motivations, right? But on the other hand, I don't think it is necessary with all of the other isolating elements 
to say that outright and possibly alienate the intertextuality for the majority of Japanese readers or, or, or viewers in the case of the anime. And so I personally believe, even though I can't prove it, that this was an intentional decision on the part of Matsumoto. Um, and I think that the evidence for that is strong. I think it makes sense that this is one of the things that in our conversation, there were a couple, most things he would either affirm or deny, but there were a couple of things he wouldn't. And I, he would not give an answer on. And I think that, that actually this is a good example of where it's smart because that, uh, just as we have a relatableness into Kiyosuke, we have this multi relatableness into Madoka and you can read her either way. And I, think that's a good thing I, I almost if he did have to affirm or deny it might actually make the character less relatable or relatable to fewer people so him being a bit ambiguous about that fact may help her legacy i think ambiguity is a big part of orange road in different ways and i think that there's a lot of ambiguity i mean the the whole idea of madoka as being kimagure as being whimsical or capricious, of course, I think is a reference to a mistake. And I, I talk about this in the in in the Wonder Years article, right? More than I think I talk about it in the. And we will put a. I will. I will put a link to the uh, Wonder Years article. Yeah, where I talk about um, the idea that capricious or whimsical, right? Kimagore is referencing Kyosuke's perception. He doesn't understand her motivations, right? He doesn't understand why she makes these decisions because she, he thinks that she must have some kind of plan, right? Hmm. And, um, you know, again, in the Wonder Years, Kevin has the same sort of complaint about Winnie. When, and, and again, like I said in the article, Kevin actually says this, but I think Kiyosuke thinks it, or I think we're, we're understood to see from his reactions that he thinks this way, is that Kevin says, I thought girls had it all figured out and always knew what they were thinking, right? So this ambiguity uh, of underlying Madoka, I think, explains why none of them know what they're doing. None of the three of them know what they're doing. They're all wrong, right? They make they, you know, they make mistakes <laughs> constantly. Different levels of wrong. They're, te- they're teenagers, right? They're teenagers, and so and and so I think if we factor into this, like I said, we factor in this ambiguity about Madoka's background, regardless of if it is or isn't the case that she is quote unquote full Japanese, which that's a whole other discussion. Yes. We can see how, if that is the case, it makes her behavior and the way she reacts, reacts to things makes sense. It is an understandable story. The narrative makes sense. Because of her her own little insecurities, too. Right. I'm and kidding. like I said, regardless of whether that particular aspect is the case, there are several others. And so this, this idea of insecurity, and of course, in the final movie, she says that. She actually comes out and says to on the phone that she's not as strong or as sure of herself as she's been projecting, as she's made Kiyosuke think. Right? Basically, she basically a character who had been putting up maybe walls around herself. Oh, Just absolutely. Heart up. Absolutely. That, in yeah. many respects, that's relatable too. No, ab- uh, again, absolutely. Teenagers do that, right? They, they, they're not, they're not, not only are they not honest 
in the projections that they project to others, they're not necessarily honest with what they project back on themselves. So yeah, absolutely. I think, I think that ironically, Madoka and Hikaru in the anime have a lot of similarities about putting on identities, but the result and, and the experiences are, 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 are different. Hmm. When you say all of this, I'm going to tell you a quick thought. And this is from a way back episode we did. Years ago, uh, we saw this play called Dog Meets God. It was a fanfic, essentially, but it gave a theory as to what the whole Charlie Brown Peanuts gang would have been like as teenagers. And just the short version is they're a bunch of, they're really fucked up for starters. But it's sort of, well, they're the products of their conditions when they were kids. And when you look at the Peanuts comic book strip, these were kids who were largely left to their own devices. We hardly ever saw any adults. So take that theory, let them screw up their lives in whatever forms, and take that in, into well into their adolescence and see what happens. And that's basically at the heart of the story of this play, Dog Meets God. And it starts off, by the way, with the worst possible scenario, Cat. It starts off with Snoopy's death. And th this is sort of, you sort of made me think about that for some, I wouldn't say necessarily strange reasons, but at least the way I can start to rationalize what you just said. I'll, I'll, I'll give you a link to the episode when we talked about it, if you're curious. So that's, in, in many respects, Madoka. Okay. I just want to go to a couple of other characters here. And just, just prefunctorily before we move on to Shinkor, the twins, the twins really grabbed me, especially at the end there, uh, especially at the end of the manga. Because in many respects, they were, like they represented Hikaru and Madoka in their own ways. Because yes, of, I'm glad you, you caught that. It doesn't exist in the anime, that, but they are, they are mirrors in the manga, absolutely. So Manami's role at the very end, I thought, was really dramatic in the manga. When basically she put it out there for Hikaru to see. Basically um, confronting her by showing the hat to her one more time. I thought that was really interesting. And, and actually, now that you think about it, remember when we talked about adapting some manga stories into the anime? Remember, Manami had that, had that habit of dressing up completely differently to go out on the town. I have right? a cell. I have a cell from that episode. I, I, why am I not surprised to hear that? But in the episode, like the story, as depicted in the anime, she gets in trouble, Manami, and then she gets bailed out by Madoka because Madoka quickly recognized her without any doubt. In the manga, she gets into similar trouble, but it's Kyosuke that sort of bails her out. Uh, but Madoka comes by as well, and same thing, recognizes her right off the bat, even though Kyosuke didn't, which I found really interesting. The twins as a, were, were a more interesting plot device in the manga, especially at the end. That, that, that's what uh, sticks out to me about them. The, the twins, I, I really like the twins. I'm a big fan of the twins. I, um, uh, I, I, I would say that, that if I have a, a second favorite character after Kyodoka, right? The couple of Kyosuke and Madoka. It's, it's, <laughs> yes. It's, you it's, you it's, mentioned that. 
it's Manami, right? I love Manami. The thing is, in the in the manga, there's a clear preference. Hikaru is is preferenced by Kurumi, right? And then mm-hmm. Madoka is preferenced by Manami. And of course, these are in their character. Manami has the sort of maternal, older, mature character. He's the and mother in absence of the real mother. Exactly. And whereas Kurumi is like the baby of the family, even though it almost makes it feel like Kyosuke is the middle child, even though he's the older brother. There's a truism in all that. Yeah, right. Like that's not as uncommon as you think when you have multi-kids. Yeah, I actually don't know. I'm an only child. So of course I'm Mm -hmm. only looking at this as, as sort of the literary device. I don't have any personal experience with it. And it's that that characterization does carry over uh, into the anime, but we lose the preference. Anime Manami and anime Kurumi don't have any, uh, don't really express any preference. Now in the movie, they both sort of, especially Manami, expresses sympathy yes. for Hikaru, mm-hmm. but I wouldn't say that that that's preference. No, it's just general sympathy because I mean you feel it for Hikaru and as right. Uh, and, and again, I think that this is a a a time issue, right? If the manga were to actually have been animated, it would have been it would have been on the order of Meizan Ikoku. It would have been eighty <laughs> episodes, one hundred and twenty. Ninety six, I believe it was ninety six. So you had to bring up ninety six. Well, of course I do because, and of course. Meizan Ikoku also has a special place in my heart, right? Oh, it does too. It does for me as well. Of this series that I have on optical media right now, I've got three of the the boxes for Meizan Ikoku. And, and like I said, it, without Meizan being, being bought Meizan Ikoku, I wouldn't, wouldn't have gone back to the store and, and discovered Orange Road. Also, it was the first, first anime series I ever saw on Fansub. I hooked up a, a whole bunch of VCRs together and uh oh my god the whirring it was like a jet engine when eight vhs decks all rewind at the same time and that would have been 98 or 99 i think anyways <laughs> getting, getting getting back to the twins again the, I, the twins are are a much more active force in the manga than they are in the anime but also of course again i think manami confronting anime hikaru who already knows the score and doesn't care Right, which is the the crux of the the conflict in in Anohi, um, he kind of just would have ignored Manami. Right, you couldn't have had that interaction in the anime. Um, mm-hmm. So, although I will say that I think the twins were underutilized and certainly didn't get a fair showing in the anime, I understand why. And also, Manami's role certainly at the at the at the end of the series simply wouldn't have been possible to duplicate in the anime because of the the difference in Hikaru's character. Well, well, that's an interesting way to put it. Can I give a word for Yusaku for a couple minutes just before? Sure. Because, I mean, I I felt bad for the guy, but at a point in the anime, you just don't see him anymore. He's at least there at the end of the manga with the realization he may have a chance with Hikaru at some point there's hope for the dude that's all i can say <laughs> i i don't have strong feelings about yusaku my own belief and, and actually 
I feel like in my conversations with, with Matsumoto, uh, he confirmed it through a denial. I'll explain what I mean. So this was actually during one of the panels. Someone asked him to, because he, he had these big ideas about revisiting Orange Road. But when he was going to visit Orange Road, revisit, he was specifically, he was going to revisit Kyodoka. Right, mm-hmm. that was the when he he had stories about adult Kyosuke and Madoka that he was thinking about producing, and so he mentioned that in the panel. And one of the fans at Katsukon, you know, raised their hand, and I took the question and interpreted, and it was basically like, "What can you tell us about Hikaru's future?" you know does she end up with anyone does she find happiness right is yusaku involved what's the story here and i think i know where they're about to go he flat out says i have no more story for hikaru her her story is done that's that's not something i i i'm interested in exploring and i got the impression that hikaru's destiny lies elsewhere completely elsewhere. And of course in Shinkor we actually see what that might look like. I don't think that is the image he had in his head. Ah, yes. Since he wouldn't share it, but this idea of Hikaru going away, I mean, you know, what she goes to New York, right? This idea mm-hmm. of Hikaru going away and and starting over or finding her own story, right? Orange Road is actually not Hikaru's story. She's a character, but one of the things that's unfortunate that Hikaru has to learn in both the anime and the manga, much more painfully in the anime, is that she is just a side character in Kiyosuke and Madoka's story. And so <laughs> that story is not about her. And, and the other characters have to learn it as well. It's not just her. Kiyosuke and Madoka have to reckon with the fact that it can't be the three of them. That she's not a main character, and they they have to accept that, right? And so uh, Hikaru's story is elsewhere. It's something else. It's a story for somebody else to tell. Now, of course, he's he's not actually talking about dodinshi or fan fiction. What he's saying is that's a story I'm not interested in telling. It's not the story that I, that I want to read. That I wanted to produce. It's something else. And oh, anybody so, who says anything about her, it's just speculation, right? You know, I'm sure he probably has some ideas. I'm sure he's thought about it. He spent enough. He spent enough of his life living in these characters' heads that I'm sure he does. But he doesn't want to share it because it's not the story that he's interested in telling. But this idea of, I, I I don't feel that there's any evidence to support the idea that Yusaku really has a chance. He might think he does because he he hasn't accepted reality yet, right? But it's not his story either. But I think probably Hikaru will end up with someone, but it won't be anyone that we've necessarily met. I think right? that's what basically happened in the movie adaptation of Shinkor. That's, that's exactly that's exactly what happened. And I think that's one of the few ways. I mean, well, you said we'll talk about Shinkor, but I think that's one of the few ways in which both Anohi, the end of Anohi, and Shinkor, not the later ones. I'm talking about the first one. The later ones. <laughs> That's how I feel about it. Um, I think and that's how, that's, there, but that's about how Matsumoto felt about it too. Is at least in the yeah. first one, I think we get this image of probably the Hikaru that that is somewhat in the universe of what Matsumoto was actually thinking for her. Her story is elsewhere. It's not. It's not going to be 
anywhere with any of the characters or the neighborhood or anything that that we're familiar with. It's 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 a it's a clean break. Interesting. Okay. Well, let's get on to the topic of Shincor for a little bit. Is ambivalence the right word to describe how he felt about that? E- because it wasn't written by him, right? Like, it, like, just wasn't. it was written by by Terera. Okay. Well, what was your first interaction with it? Where did you first get familiar with, with that light novel? Oh, the novel, not until many years later. Um, okay. I watched the, the, the ADV movie. Okay. Which I, which I liked when I had very little access. And it was the only dubbed uh, Orange Road. Well, yeah, that's true. And for reference for me, I knew about it almost along the same time as the existence of the manga and the anime. Yeah, it it came out it was it was it was probably when it when it came to the anime, it was probably the easiest and I still have my original ADV disc I DVD I bought at the time. It was oh, out on yeah. it was out too. on out on DVD very early. And ADV was like one of was much bigger than Animego and had a much bigger reach. Oh how things have changed, right? <laughs> yeah, and I was gonna say, oh well they're not even ADV anymore, they're a Sentai and like five other things oh yes we know but i think it was the only kim Gary orange road anything that i could walk into like a best buy or a suncoast might have been suncoast and literally just go to a, a regular normal store and my god there's kimagore or Rodo like like on a normal store shelf right and so of course i bought it and i watched it i love the music right i absolutely love the music you know, people people ragged on it because a lot of the standard artists who were in the anime weren't featured at any point in that movie. That's true. Takata didn't even do the character designs, right? Yeah. That, well, I know that's, that's not music, I mean, but I know, but, but it was a complete departure from everything else. It wasn't it uh, wasn't Shiro Sugisu who did the Anakawada was featured prominently in the music back then, not here. But but I think the soundtrack is absolutely amazing. Uh, what they did with Madoka's Piano Files and Kioske Number One, and and even those scenes where the the music is very prominent are, in my opinion, the best part. I have real problems with the story, and I think so did Matsumoto, mm-hmm. primarily because of this idea that even Anohi, which he he told me he he was consulted on not very much right i think they they asked him some questions to help help hammer out like what oh my god what are we going to do because the hikaru situation is so different that this has to be different that they did talk to him uh, a bit about how to about how to put together and Toreda wrote that too i think but at least there was conversations my understanding is when it comes to shinkor he was not involved at all he still has an author credit on the first one I think on the novels, but the truth is he had absolutely nothing to do with it. And it, it really feels like going backwards to me, right? It's, it's trying to uh. reintroduce the triangle conflict that's already been resolved. And it feels it's, it, it's difficult for me to watch because I, I don't know that I believe it. Okay. I get where you're going. It's beating a dead horse. It's over, right? It's over. 
No need to revisit. Well, at least that that part of the story, because I don't think that it would be impossible to have additions to the universe, right? To the canon, to the things that I think he was talking about. What would their married life look like? Uh, children, right? What would ch- what would what would children look like? Those kinds of things. I, I think telling a different story about the same characters, but this was telling the same story about the same characters when, yeah, that story was already over and it undid a lot of the growth that Kyosuke had done at the end of the series, both of them, you know, 19 year old Kyosuke in, in, in Shin Kor is a lot is like a return to the first episode. Right. And I don't like that at all. Uh, I, I like Hikaru in Shin Kor, right? I think her character is very, very good. I don't like Madoka's character either to a degree. I like, su- it's hard to, uh, yeah, ambivalent is a good way to put it. I, I think it was unnecessary. I think that I would rewrite it, right? If, you know, if I had my, and of course I know Matsumoto would probably just trash it. But um, I think that there were a couple of, of elements, like Hikaru's, what we learn about Hikaru, who is a character that has really come into her own as a person. She's identifiable that, that identity, she has an identity and it's really her. And she also does, is not upset or angry about the breakup. In fact, she even says that she says something like I'm, I'm falling into old habits. I've got to get a hold of myself. I'm acting the same way, you know, as when he dumped me. Right. Really like, mm-hmm. like, like realizing that her, that her adult self, who's a different person has to take the child and, and, and put her back in the compartment in the back of her mind because she's not that person anymore. And I respect that Hikaru. And I like that Hikaru. I like Hikaru in Shinkor, right? I was, I'm all, I was happy about it to the degree that I think she got her closure in the, the anime version. If we we're to take the whole talk about the difference two t- different types of Hikarus, the anime and the manga. I accepted Shinkor, the movie, if only because I think we got her closure. The anime Hikaru got her closure. Oh, I agree. I mean, that's one of the things, I, like I said, I like about Shinkor. It's just, in order for the setup to be as it is, I, I think that there's some retrograde motion in the characterization of uh, Kiyosuke and Madoka, and I have I that's have trouble the, buying it. Yeah, I have trouble believing it. I I guess I I almost I guess I could so much sort of feel the same way. As I said, it was to me it was more about Hikaru, not Kiyosuke and Madoka. But then that loses the point of core, doesn't it? It it it. I think Shin Core basically, if we accept that, if we accept that the the narrative purpose of Shin Core was to give Hikaru her story, her closure, and right, make sure she's happy. I think that violates what we earlier talked about, about yes. what Matsumoto wanted to do with the story. And I think that's why he wasn't, he wasn't particularly happy with it. Mm-hmm. And then, that's why it's, it's good in one sense, but it became problematic in a key, in probably a more important sense. And then the other two, do we really want to spend any time on it? They're, they're, they nope. good. Not really. <laughs> Peter Payne only did the translations of the first two. And this, the first one was okay because I, I was coming off wanting to learn as much as I could about core. And of course, it's a translate, a fan translation. Who knows 
how good it really was. I, I guess that's fair. The second one was just, what was the point? So I, I'm going to guess the third one was even more so that. You know? it, it was, it, 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 I think many years ago, I own them, right? I own them because I, I, I'm a collector. So I own the physical items, but mm-hmm. I, but I think I compared it to like a descent into turning the characters into sort of like Scooby-Doo, but with Kimmy the Orange Road characters, right? Like that's what it sort of became. It got on. And, and the other thing is, like I said, Hikaru's story is done and separate. So bringing these characters back, like, I'll be honest with you, like even the twins, they're adults now. The twins need to go have their own lives, right? The, if we're going to have a continuation, it should be what, like I said, what I exactly think Matsumoto would have considered doing if he had been able to continue and he had these ideas, which is we focus on what an adult relationship is between Kyosuke and Madoka and we would have a, a different cast of outside characters, right? It would be a different story. And shoehorning the, 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 getting the gang back together doesn't make any sense because the whole point of the resolution of this, of the manga or the anime was that the gang, at least some elements of the gang break up. And especially when you've got a, a love triangle in the middle of the gang, is it really going to survive adulthood? And of course the answer is no. So returning to this in the, in, in Shinkor, especially the, the uh, two and three, it, it's out of step. It's it's he, basically Matsumoto really didn't even consider them canon. So maybe we shouldn't either. Yeah, I, I think we shouldn't. <laughs> when you talked about all of this just now, you know what came up to mind? And it's not totally related, but hear me out for a sec. Star Trek Picard, because I watched the whole first season of that. It was a completely new story that surrounded Picard but with a completely new cast. And that should have been able to stand on its own, but most of us pined for the reunion with the odd old character. So they focused a complete episode where he was reunited with Riker and Troy. But it was meant to be a completely new story surrounding Picard and a more hardened version to Picard and a new, and a new crew. That's what you had me thinking on that rant just a, a minute ago. Yeah. And I felt, while it was a, a nice little hook to have Riker and Troy, the show had to stand up on the actual story with all the new characters introduced. And I thought it did it okay. But here we hear word now that other actors from the original Next Generation television series will make appearances in Picard in the upcoming season. I have mixed feelings about that personally so that's just me but you you had me thinking in that in those terms when you just brought that up i I think it's an interesting comparison i I think the big difference between shinkor 2 and and, and 3 and card is that of course we would expect that especially the twins right we would expect the twins being family we would expect them to periodically come in and out of the story because what Kyosuke is not going to like stop talking to his sisters. That's, that's not going to happen. Right. And well, other, characters, house, but yeah. yes. other, char- <laughs> other characters may appear from time to time. And in Picard, I think that the inclusion of right, those two episodes, I think with Riker and Troy 
mm-hmm. are okay. And I, I think that if one episode, LeVar Burton shows up as Jordy and it's one episode, or we get, or we get, well, a, is to show up now. Yeah, too, right? We, right. Whoopi, sure. Or, or even some of the other characters, right? As long as it is a cameo, or a little bit more than a cameo, but it's a guest star sorts of situation, we would expect the people who aren't going to lose complete touch. Now, I think Hikaru is a special case because I think that that Hikaru is supposed to have this clean break, but the other characters not necessarily so. So when it comes to the case of, of Picard, which I watched and I enjoyed, I'm liking all of, of New Trek, by the way. I have <laughs> similar criticisms of New Trek that I did of Old Trek when Old Trek was New Trek. So I think that the, the big problem with Shin Korn, uh 2 and 3 is you have the twins who have their own lives and are getting ready to go into university or will be or are in university. You've mm. got... Hikaru, who actually lives in New York and is in the the New York Actors Studio, which is extremely prominent. Madoka and Kyosuke are at one of the top Japanese universities, Waseda. What time do they have to get all together? And and it's it's not realistic, right? It's not the way that life works. And so I, I don't have a problem necessarily with periodic visits by characters because hey i you know even in japan uh tim eldred who i mentioned uh erica friedman uh dave merrill these other fandom you know individuals that i uh, i can talk about right great commentator walter, walter amos walter amos right these are people who periodically every few years will come to Japan and will hang out for a day or a couple of days. If it's my story, they make periodic guest appearances, right? But not like when I was seeing them at at regular events or conventions when I was younger, right? They're not as a big part of my life. And Mm -hmm. that's real. And even my family, my family lives 7,000 miles away. So even my aunts or my uncles or my mother, my mother or my, my, my stepfather, they make periodic guest appearances in my life they're not the regular cast of characters right jerome rothman who i work together with at um the union that i'm an organizer and executive of i see him almost every every other couple days right he's one of the regular characters in my current story right one of the starring starring characters yeah starring characters right yeah so if we look at it that way i think it is unrealistic to try to go back and shove characters together when the circumstances of their lives, as has been shown in the series, doesn't, doesn't make sense. Fit. Doesn't fit. Right? It, it, it. It, it, it's unrealistic. It, it, you cannot suspend your disbelief. Yeah, that's a fair point. Okay, well, let's start to wind it down a little bit because I want to get to Matsumoto himself. You met him. You met him back in 2012. I, I, I'm going to gather that you didn't really keep in touch with him anymore after that. But what was your impressions of him back in 2012? So I talked a lot about it in, in, in the article, but yes, he was but... very quiet, very soft-spoken, very unassuming, very humble. He um, was polite. He was 
constantly surprised. Um, ah, right. Yes. He, he walked around, walked around Katsukan any time we were in public, certainly, but even some of the conversations we had privately, he was walking around wide eyed, very, um, and, and like I said, I mean, this, these are my perceptions that back up what he actually said to me. But of course he, he said that he was, you know, continually surprised, continually shocked. He just, he never really accepted that his fame made any sense. Interesting. He, he never, it, it seemed like he never became, um, I don't know. Comfortable? Comfortable is not the right word. Blasé? Like, he didn't take it for granted? Even better. It didn't fade into the background. It wasn't like, okay, I'm a celebrity. I created this 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 work that's famous. And everybody knows it. And I'm just going to sort of accept that this is background noise. Right? That... And and I the reason why I think it was genuine is because there's no way he could have faked that for four days, ah. right? It would, you know what I mean? It would be exhausting to have that reaction to everything. And I was and I was with him anytime he wasn't basically asleep or taking a shower or going to the bathroom, right? Because it was such a rare appearance for him. His schedule, his schedule was pretty packed. He only did two conventions that year. He did Katsukan and he did Expo, Anime Expo. If given that option, sure. And it had been, it had been years since he had done a convention. And then I think he did a convention in 2013 and then wouldn't do conventions again, period, maybe, or not for many years. Right. So he had a pretty full schedule. He arrived Thursday and then had a schedule of sort of checking in and, and doing things. And of course being introduced to me and going over what would happen. And then the Friday, the Saturday and the Sunday, there were panels and events. And uh, he had a, he had tables both in like the artist alley and in the vending room. And depending on traffic of, of for autographs and, and, um, and drawings and stuff, they, the staff members who were responsible for that would tell us where we go. And we had, we had little cards that we carried along on our badges that had our entire schedule on it. So I would know mm-hmm. when to get him and, and take him places and whatnot. So, I mean, we're easily talking like, well, 16 hours each day. Yes. Right. Or something like that. Each that day I for over four days, something yeah, to that effect. Four, four days or less than maybe three and a half because, you know, you lose a, you, you, Thursday afternoon and then you leave, Sunday night or Monday, Monday morning, I think. Okay. And so that's actually a lot of time to spend near a single person. And like I said, whenever we went off site for things like we went to like a hibachi place because he was curious what Americans idea of Japanese food was. (laughs) And what what was his reaction? Oh, he thought it was very good. Okay. He thought it was very meat centric. Ah, yes, that's. The Japanese diet, of course. But we don't, uh, we, we don't, um, I've never, go, I've never found a place like Benihana or like a Habat, like a, I've never found any place like that here in Japan. So I mm-hmm. think, I think whatever became Benihana is definitely a, a bit of a, a faux 
uh, Japanese. So it was, it was, so for him, it was as exotic as most Americans think it was. There's an irony in that. Yeah, there is. There, there is. is. And so we ate meals together, sometimes with other people in the green room where the other guests and the other guest liaisons were. But like I said, like that particular instance and a couple of others, it was myself, Matsumoto, and Maida, Maida-san, who is his, was his manager. Okay. And Maida-san was definitely business, right? <laughs> like, I don't know how long he'd been with Matsumoto, but it was clear that he himself was not actually a fan of the work. This was his job. Or at least he never he never joined our conversations or said much to me that wasn't directly related to scheduling or business or getting something from Matsumoto, right? Nah. He wasn't concerned about the the content of of the work. You know, he would be like, Oh, for this panel, we need you need you need to communicate with the tech people to make sure we have this big of a screen or there's this many chairs or we need to have this many bottles of water or things like that. This is the conversations that I would have. He was a manager, right? He was being a manager. Basically those logistics. Yeah. So he would sit there like when we went like when we went to uh, the hibachi place, we were talking about um, my my graduate school work, which is on pre-war Japanese constitutionalism and Japanese radical ultranationalism. There's there's a degree of relevancy in that topic right now. Yeah, well, that's, that's another story. I, I know, but yeah, and so, but the so again, Midasan just kind of stayed there, and he ordered and he ate, but he didn't involve himself in the conversation. So even even though I I wasn't ever technically alone with Matsumoto, just him and me, because Midasan would have been there at any time, because I think they were sharing the hotel room. He was at times, and I, again, I think this is probably intentional because a good manager perhaps wants to be furniture at times, um, if you understand that that expression. And so, even if Midasan was there, he wasn't interacting, and and he never, and I, I apparently never crossed any lines or anything like that with any of the questions I asked or anything like that because Midasan never jumped in and was like. You can't ask that or, or, or don't say that to him or any, anything like that. Of course, one would hope that I wouldn't have had, I, I, I would have at that point, maybe when I was younger, but certainly I think at that point, I don't think I would have done anything. I think I was very cognizant of how delicate I, I needed to be. Although I don't think that like, I don't think anything was particularly controversial. No, no, I don't think. I guess basically I would, I would boil down my description of Matsumoto is just someone who was just happy that people were paying attention to what he did. Right. And that's basically it. Ken Akamatsu, when he found out about the overseas popularity of Love Hina, expressed surprised in the same way because he said it was a very Japanese story. Kimagori Orange Road, I guess, is a very Japanese story, too. Afterwards, Akamatsu then said he'd be more cognizant of his overseas fans as he continued to write. Was Could you see that being a sort of reaction Matsumoto would have had concerning his overseas, outside-of-Japan popularity? He do you think he would have had a little bit more of a, an awareness of his overseas fans if he was able to continue? I I think that he 
and this is pure speculation because of course I, I never asked him I, I never asked him directly about this but based on our conversations and what he said both to me personally directly and also you know the way he responded to questions in, in panels I think he would have said that Orange Road was only a Japanese story in that it took place in Japan because so much of his influence, right? You, you, you know, Phoebe Cates, but it wasn't just that his musical influence, his movies influence, he was drawing from American sources of media from the beginning, right? In the conceptualization and certainly being born in the late sixties, I guess was, was he born in 60? No, he was born in fifties, 59. Um, and so gr growing up in the 60s, growing up in the being born in late 59, I think, and then gr growing up in the the 60s, of course, um, America still had a, even more than today, still had a very strong sort of occupational presence, not just rock and roll, but like I said, film and fashion and these other things. And also, as I say in the, the article, that Japan was going through this this sort of homogenization process, right? Mm -hmm. And so Takaoka is not a particular small city, but it is very far away from Tokyo. But there would have been similarities to what was happening all around the country. And, you know, like the Beatles were very popular, right? The Beatles were hugely yeah. popular in Japan at the time. Um, rock music in general. Yeah, rock music in general. But it wasn't, it wasn't just that. And so I, I feel, again, I'm speculating here, but I feel that Matsumoto would probably disagree at least not disagree with, with Akamatsu about his own work, but disagree with Akamatsu that that, would, that that same sort of description would apply. So it, I don't know that his surprise was that those who weren't Japanese would understand the story, right? The, the themes are so very universal. Yes. Right? That, uh, that that I don't think that would surprise him. I think what surprised him is that it would become popular enough that it would make it out of out of Japan. I think that's what surprised him. Oh, okay. Well, at a point, you know, as I said, I think the universal part is what helps in the first place. And it's worth noting, this is part of the legacy of Kimigori Orange Road. It opened up anime to a generation in Europe because it was very popular there initially. I mean, you joked with me, you might be the biggest Kimigori Orange Road fan, non-Japanese-wise, but you mentioned to me there's an Italian who probably would come a very close second to you. Yes. I thought, uh, I, I, I thought that was an amusing I, point. I don't, remember, I don't remember his name, but I, I, I came across his collection and some of the essays he wrote in the Italian. But the, the, I would say that, that the French and the Italians had i don't know if they still do but at the time when i last looked which was a you know good 10 years ago certainly in the 90s those two what na nacio linguistic groups mm -hmm. had the mo the tightest communities around orange road right they were light years ahead of any type of fandom community for orange road in north america or in english or in English well, for that. Well, well, yeah, or in English. Although I would, I would argue that 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 Orange Road never hit the, the UK or Commonwealth countries like uh, Australia or New Zealand the way it hit 
America and Canada, right? That, mm. that, you know, I, that's my feeling. So it okay. isn't, I, that, that may become, have become true later, but if we look at that period of, of time in the nineties, right? I, I would say that, 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 that I've, I haven't seen any evidence in all of my research I, on the internet. I haven't seen, there might've been a couple of individual fans, but I'd say that as far as polls of fandom outside of Japan, it would have been North America and then it would have been French and Italian, right? I know it was also popular in Spain, yes, but not as popular as in France or, um, and, and it was in a couple of other places. It was in Singapore and it is, is very popular even today in Taiwan. Okay. Well, probably could be reinterpreted there easily too. Okay, let's start to wind it down because there was another thought that sort of came into my head. You mentioned a bit about his insecurities concerning his legacy. He, there's, uh, reading around, there's maybe a two or three other works that never got off the ground. The one that sticks out to me was, was it the story of Henry Huskin, the translator of Townsend Harris? I remember yeah, reading did. that he was working on a story concerning that, I guess historical fiction, but never got around to doing that, I guess. That's the impression I got. He did a lot of research. I think he did some sketches. I shouldn't even say he did he did a lot of research. He actually did he he actually went and did quite a bit of on the ground uh, you know, almost like ar- archaeology <laughs> digging into records in, in archives. But I, I don't get the feeling. I, I've seen a couple of pages of what would have been the first volume. Mm-hmm. But they were rough. They were in the, the, the style um, of, of initial sketches where the, the panels have been hand-drawn so the lines aren't directly parallel. It looks a lot like his earlier work with with spring wonder which would become community orange road because i actually have fan books that he made from him (laughs) okay of those old sketches so i think i've seen like two or three pages of that manga but he never got very far and it's because he simply he couldn't draw long enough to make any it's his conditions it's the various health conditions that he suffered from like what what do you know of other titles could have come down the pipe that just never could like that's the one that that stuck out to me i think there was another that was sort of autobiographical yeah let me that's the one that stuck out well he he got the the second one basically he was able to do sesame street yes i do Uh, remember reading about that title oh so he was working on tobioki recovery is the one that you're talking about that was autobiographical Mm mm-hmm but it's 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 fictionalized, so it's it's basically him, but it's it's not. It was overdue years ago. What twenty twenty eleven? It never <laughs> was completed. You know, I know that he has wanted to uh, do more work, but for all intents and purposes, really, it was Kim Orange Road. It was Sesame Street. The one that you're talking about is Bakumatsu, um, Bakumatsu Rashomon Musume Joshi. Mm-hmm. Yes. And then Tobioki is the one that he never got around to actually delivering. All right. Uh, and I don't think he 
had really anything else. He had ideas. Like I said, he, he talked about going back to orange road Mm -hmm. and, um, putting together at least uh, an episode, if, if not something longer about the adult relationship between Kyosuke and Madoka. But, you know, truthfully, he really, other than Sesame Street, Sesame Street is, I think, the only thing he actually really produced that you can go out and buy in, like, manga volumes. Okay. Well, it was more of a case of, well, I, I I remember one of your last lines in the tribute. Towards the end, he wanted to find his purposeful masterpiece because he looked at Kimigori Orange Road as an unintended one. Well, to be fair, I I say maybe. That's my perception. That's how I... A lot of what I wrote is me trying to interpret not just what he said, but what he didn't say. What was left in the pauses of our conversations, right? So if I, you know, I'll say he said this to me if I'm essentially quoting him directly. That's what I think it felt like to me. It felt like he, like that. That's what I think that Bakamatsu was going to be. That's what I think he intended it to be. Well, he didn't. Of course, he wanted to continue. Right? It makes sense that he wanted to continue and see if he can better himself. Come oh, up with yeah, that's that's I mean, definitely that's true. Human too. nature, right? I think that there is something to the idea that we want to do things for recognition and to be recognized for doing them. And that this isn't egotistical. It isn't arrogant, right? I think that there's a a natural desire to be recognized for what we produce if we're trying to produce it for recognition, right? Um, (laughs) There's a lot of, uh, I mean, I I know that there's, it's it's very, very uh, common to say that, you know, you shouldn't do things for the accolades. You shouldn't make things for awards, right? You'll you'll hear that, right? But I, I, I cliche I, in many ways. Yeah, but I really got the feeling that he he felt that there was he was seen as a as a master. Now that he was seen as as a, 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 a pinnacle of of his art form something he never never wanted or thought out to do right i think it's more of a he didn't think it was possible it's not like he he didn't want it to happen it's like it just didn't occur to him that now there's this expectation that he's going to produce a masterpiece and everybody is going to love it right it's like you're michelangelo right and Someone expects you because they to 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 make to make the David. Why? Because you're Michelangelo, and that's what you do, right? I, I think that was again. I'm totally speculating, and I'm basing this upon lots of small little interactions. So this is my interpretation. Oh, and that's of, fine. And you know, is I I feel that was what it was. Is there's this pressure, there's this expectation, and he internalized it and he bought into it. Okay, I create masterpieces. I have to create a masterpiece. Is is mm-hmm. the way way I, I I I think about it. And and Orange Road didn't work because he didn't he didn't intend to do it that way, right? It, for for him, it didn't solve. It, he couldn't say 
He couldn't rest on his laurels. Well, there, yeah, I'm sure there were many other reasons. Yeah, uh, this is, but it, it did, it did seem that he had this urge to continue creating, to continue doing this. And it was both, both external and internal pressure. Not okay. Right. Well, just to put it like, to put into a perspective that maybe for others to understand Yokozuna in sumo, right? There's that whole ranking system for sumo Tori and sumo wrestlers. They go up and down depending on their performance. But once they reach the top rank, once they reach grand champion, Yokozuna, they can never be demoted again. But with it comes the obligation to act like a Yokozuna always, or that's it. You have to retire. There's like the pressure becomes maybe tenfold once you hit the rank. You struggle to get there. So maybe adding to the cliche, it's tougher to stay at the top than to get there. And maybe that sounds like that sounds like Matsumoto in some ways. Maybe that, that that's the rationale anyway. But as I said, I'm jealous that you got to meet him and hang out with him the way you did. If, if you had one more thing to say to him personally, what would it be? And this is my last question for tonight. Ooh. Hmm. I, I can't answer that. And the reason why I can't answer that is because I don't think I didn't say anything. I think everything that I said to him uh, when we met in 2012 has just continued to prove itself true. So I, 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 I and I think that's one of the reasons why as personal as this loss felt to me, I don't have any regrets because I, I don't, I don't think that there's anything that I would want to tell him that I, I didn't tell them him or I, or I or you know, there's nothing that I didn't think needed further explanation or that he didn't understand. So yeah, I, I, I would say that, that there's, there's nothing. And actually that's a really good place to be considering hmm. that's a very fair answer that's a good answer i will say though to just casual fans or really just observers like myself his legacy secure because like i said he opened up fandom in europe in many ways along with dragon ball like you mentioned and he helped establish certain what could work in Shonen Jump? What other types of titles could work in Shonen Jump? So in some ways, he shaped various parts of the industry. And we have him to thank for that. And the legacy sort of continues because just before we st started talking this evening, you sent me an article from Anime News Network. Retro Crush has picked up a, a slew of titles, including Kimigori Orange Road. Yes, it has. And this is for us as fans, to the listeners, 
we have to say there's not going to be too many more excuses not to watch this. It is widely available on Crunchyroll. It has been long re-released by Discotech. And now you have an, a, a free option now with Retro Crush. And it will be the whole thing. Uh, minus Shinkor. Yeah, that, that's the interesting part. I wonder what becomes a Shinkor, actually, because that hasn't seen a re-release at any point. Yeah, I don't... Uh, well, in Japan it has, of course. I, I have mm-hmm. the I have the Japanese DVD. Um, but yeah, I don't... Uh, that's a good point. I, I don't know who holds the license. I don't know if it's Sentai, you know, uh, having inherited ADV's licenses or whether it is expired and it's available to be picked up. Might be no. something to reach out to Sentai and, and ask them. For curiosity, but if all things considering with what you just said about it and what we just talked about concerning it, somehow maybe you'll live. It's it's not necessary, in my opinion. That's my opinion. Mm-hmm. It's not necessary to to uh, enjoy the anime series. Though I, I want to tell our listeners who have not seen my many, many tweets on the subject. If you're going to watch the anime straight through from episode one through Anohi, the movie, there is an order I recommend you do it in. And that is watch the TV series until episode 46, watch the OVAs, then watch episode 47 and episode 48, which is a two-parter, and then watch the final movie, or Anohi. Do this because, as we talked about earlier, the OVAs basically can exist sort of anywhere in the timeline, right? And so there are some elements of resolution, not completely, but some elements of resolution in episodes 47 and 48 that will seem to go backwards if you watch them before you watch the OVAs. So anyone who's going to be watching this for the first time or watched, you know, a couple of episodes that they got many years ago and have never seen the full series, I strongly recommend that that is the order that you watch it in. For what it's worth, I think there was maybe one or two stories in the OAV that actually is set in the latter stages of the manga, too. That's correct. In some ways, watching that towards the end really wouldn't put it out of place at all. Okay, Kat. Um, now that you mentioned your Twitter, where where can we um, read more uh, of your stuff and your Twitter handle if you're willing to give it? Yeah, so um, you can follow me at Jezebel Cat, um, all one word. Of course, we'll put a link up. As far as where I write, uh, I'm I'm freelancing um, at the moment. I've had previous staff positions at various publications, but right now I'm just freelancing. So. I guess, yeah, just follow me on, on Twitter. That's where you can pretty much find me. I don't do a lot with any other social media. And if I write something or I post something, it'll probably be there. My own uh, website is Nipolitica, which is a combination of Nippon and Politica, politics. Uh, and that's at WordPress, so .wordpress.com. But I only post things there that I can't end up placing uh, on other publications because writing is my job and hopefully people you know, pay me for it when I have a story to share. For reference, the Wonder Years article is actually on Nipolitica. That's so correct. We will put a link to that. Um, just quickly, I guess our socials, uh, 
If you want to email us, animeroundtable at gmail.com is our email address. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Anime Roundtable, and animeroundtable.com is our show archive, and you can listen up on past episodes there. Oh, and personally, I guess I've never mentioned my own personal Twitter account. You can contact me personally at Okina Blue, all one word. Just one other thing, and I guess we'll say this quickly also, the last part of the legacy. Kevin Ng, one of our regulars, actually mentioned he was by Beguiling recently, and he suddenly saw volumes of the manga for sale there. So the legacy, the legend continues, I guess. Kat Callahan, pleasure talking with you. Can you come by again every so often? Absolutely. Um, you know, Orange Road is is by far my favorite, but um, mm-hmm. I, I know I, I have a lot of favorites, you know, from that are retro and comments on new. Um, I used to uh, write for the now defunct anime now. Um, yeah. And I also my I am always, uh, always love to talk about my my second favorite anime love, which is um, Revolutionary Girl Utena. <laughs> I warn you, I warn you that because the fandom of Utena is much larger than the fandom for Orange Road, if you do follow me on Twitter, get ready for the Utena memes because they are coming. Oh, I, I could tell you a story about meeting their creators sometime. I would love to hear it. Well, I'll tell you off the air. That's all we got for this episode. Thanks for listening.